Brothers and sisters, it's good to see you this evening. I trust you had a good afternoon doing whatever the Lord led for you to do. Hopefully getting some rest, a bit of a pause day in the week. Essential, I think. Well, it happens every so often. And when it does, you're touched. And when it does, you're blessed. And when it does, really, you never forget it. It happened for us when at the initial B and his wife, the initial J, without any notice, when asked, took care of our three-year-old daughter when Beth and I had to leave town on urgent business. It also happened when the initial B and the initial T totally surprised us with a $20,000 gift to our family for medical treatments that were necessary for one of our family members. It happened to me when a pastor rebuked me for a vague prayer that really lacked faith when I offered it in his presence. It does happen when people truly, genuinely care for us. And so let me ask you tonight, how do you know if someone really cares for you and has your best interests at heart? What do you read into a situation where someone says they'll call you and they never do? On the other hand, what does it mean when someone rearranges their life without even being asked to bless you? When there's genuine interest in someone else, how is that interest maintained? How is that interest grown over time? How important is it in a sense that someone else is interested in you? How important is that? Especially how important is that that someone is interested in you and your spiritual advancement? I'd like to pray with you. Father God, we see in your creation that lions isolate their prey before the kill. And it is the animals without the interest and care and protection of other animals which soon become delicious dinner. Father, at the beginning of this sermon, we face the fact that we are but little lambs who are naive and needy and vulnerable. And not wisely, are self-sufficient. Father, please protect us from the prowling, roaring lion named Satan, who would love it if we would let no one care for us, and he would love it if we would refuse to care about anybody else. And Father, please cause us to be a tool of your protection for other little lambs who we know and love who are being stalked by a roaming and a roaring lion. Father, please make our caring interest in our brothers and sisters genuine and practical and enduring. And Heavenly Father, where necessary, we repent of going it alone, of being a flock of one. Please use Romans 1, 8 to 10 
to make our caring interest in our brothers and sisters in Christ real and evident. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. At the time of the writing of the epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul had never been able to visit Rome and the church that was there. And the Romans may well have wondered if Paul was really interested in them, if he actually cared for them. And in the time we have in God's Word together this evening, we're going to take up two proofs of the Apostle Paul's caring for the Christians at Rome. We're going to look at verses 8 to 10 of Romans 1. I encourage you to turn there if you have not done so already. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 are our text this evening. Hear the word of God. Romans 1, 8 through 10. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Again, what we have here in these verses are two proofs that the Apostle Paul genuinely cared for the church at Rome, although he had never been there. The first proof of his care was that Paul had heard of the Roman Christians' good testimony for Jesus throughout the then-known world. Let me say it again. The proof that the Apostle Paul actually cared for the first readers of the epistle to the Romans was that he had heard of their good testimony for Jesus throughout the then-known world. They see that in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Please notice with me that the Roman church's faith, which was proclaimed or preached throughout the whole known world, was known to Paul. And further, realize that saving and sanctifying faith is what makes for a good testimony. If Calvary Bible Church would have a good testimony that's known far and wide, then we must have a saving faith in Christ, but we also must have a sanctifying faith in Christ. Our faith in Christ ought to be setting us apart from a world system, a worldview that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. Of course, James, Jesus' half-brother, said in James 2, something on this, verse 26 of James 2, for just... As the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We are told in Ephesians 2.1 that we formerly were dead in trespasses and sins. We were unresponsive to God. We were separated from God in a meaningful relationship with God. Our prayers went no higher than the ceiling when we prayed as spiritually dead pre-Christ people. James is saying that as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. But this church at Rome had a living faith in a living Savior. They had a faith that saved them from sin's penalty, power, and one day presence. But they had a faith in Jesus Christ which was setting them apart to be different, credible, authentic, 
believers in Jesus. And that was the faith, the combination of saving faith and sanctifying faith that was spreading through the then known world that the Apostle Paul became aware of. Wouldn't it be something if a a believer in England came to hear of the faith of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas? A faith that is both in Christ for salvation and a faith that equally is in Christ by his spirit for sanctification. Paul proved that he cared for the church of ancient Rome because he knew about their good testimony for Jesus throughout the then known world. And the Romans could know back then as well-known, as well-traveled as Paul was, that he cared about them because he knew about and he commented on their good reputation which preceded them. And again, this good reputation was the combination of saving and sanctifying faith and good works. At the end of the epistle in chapter 15 and verse 14, he wrote to these precious believers, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Let's make this more personal. We are privileged to have missionaries that we support through prayer and through finances. Edison and Eunice Pinder there in Cat Island. What would it mean to Edison and Eunice Pinder if the next time they came to visit us here in Nassau that you went up to them and asked them about the prayer request they had conveyed in an email? What would it mean to them, the Pinders on Cat Island, if you picked up the phone and phoned them and asked them, how can I pray? How can my family pray for you this week as you minister on Cat Island? What would it mean if they saw in us as just a sample of our missionaries that our faith in Christ is not only for salvation, but our faith in Christ is for sanctification? What would it mean to them as a sample of our missionary family if we prove to them our genuine care for them, having heard of the Pinder's good testimony to Christ Jesus on the Cat Island in this great country. It would mean a lot to them. It would mean tons to them. It really would. We have the opportunity to prove our genuine caring interest in any and all of our missionaries by keeping track of their testimony, of being responsive to their prayer requests, of lifting them up in a systematic and regular way to the Lord in prayer. And one of the ways, of course, that I'm saying tonight that the great Apostle Paul proved his real interest in the first church of Rome, I'm just calling it that, was that he could intelligently, informedly comment on their sterling testimony for Christ. He knew about their faith. He was acquainted with their good works. Now, please hold your place in Romans 1 and go to, with the, let me to the last chapter, 16. The very last chapter of this epistle is 16. I want you to go there with me. Here at the close of this letter to the church at Rome, Paul references 20 individuals by name who are part of the house churches of Rome. This is absolutely startling because there were no phones, there were no cars, there were no emails, there was no Skype. 
and a few named in the list were previously known to the Apostle Paul from other contacts, but 20 of the names listed at the end of the book, 20 persons were known to Paul only from a distance. He never had met them face to face. You see, apparently Paul, in all of his response to God's leading as the apostle to the Gentiles and all of his church planting around the Mediterranean basin, he made it his business to know about a local church he'd never visited, to know and care for believers he had never shook hands with or embraced. You could do the same. After this service is closed, you could walk up to someone that you don't know and you could shake their hand and tell them you're glad they're here tonight and ask them if there's a way you could pray for them this week. Then be sure to pray. You could go up to a person that you think you barely know and you could shake their hand with a smile on their face and you could ask, how long have you been coming to Calvary Bible Church? They may say, this is my first time. Or they may say, I've been coming here for 10 years. Then you say, I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you after 10 years, but I'm glad I'm meeting you tonight. How can I pray for you? How does a pastor know the people of the flock by name? The same as any believer does by caring enough to work at names, by caring enough to regularly pray for people in the congregation by name. Paul could write to a church which he had never personally visited, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul had heard about them. Paul had made it his business to hear about them. That is proven Christian caring. And so the first proof of Paul's caring in them, his caring interest in the church at Rome, was that Paul had heard of their good testimony through Jesus and to Jesus through the then known world. The second proof of Paul's caring interest in the Roman Christians was this. Paul could point to his ongoing intercessory prayer for them. Paul proved he was interested in them, although he had never met them, because he could point to the actuality of his ongoing intercessory prayer for them, although he never met them. Verses 9 and 10, please. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention to you, always make mention, excuse me, of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul went as high as a witness as you can go in the created universe. Paul went as high as God, as witness, that he was actually interceding for the believers in Rome in prayer. Verse 9 again. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. 
Now, there are two little but huge words in these two verses, 9 and 10. The first little but huge word is unceasingly, and the second little but huge word is in verse 10, it's always. Unceasingly and always are huge words. And Paul used them in verse 9 and 10. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul prayed for these Roman Christians whom he had never met unceasingly. And when he did so, he always prayed that the Lord would allow him the privilege of going to Rome to meet them for the first time. You know, when a person can truthfully say, I unceasingly pray for you, then their caring interest in you is unquestionably proven. There is no argument. There is no wonderment. There is no kidding. It's slam dunk proven. If a person can look you in the eye and say, I unceasingly pray for you. Now, I may be underestimating this, but if you ask me, Pastor Rob, who do you think unceasingly prays for you? It'd be a short list. My wife, my father and my mother, and my father-in-law. And maybe that's not unusual that the people I know that unceasingly pray for me is a short list, but I'm grateful for each of them. And who better to unceasingly pray for you than your Christian nuclear family members? And if, on the other side of the coin, if you will not always unceasingly pray for your nuclear family members, then who will? Prayer makes a difference. The study was done of the Edwards and the Jukes family. Families. He entered Yale College at age 13 and graduated with honors. He became a pastor, and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, started the Great Awakening, a revival that swept America, uniting the country prior to the revolution. He became president of Princeton College. And his name was Jonathan Edwards. He was born October 5, 1703. Jonathan Edwards married Sarah Pierrepont. And according to a study in Education and Heredity by A.E. Winship of 1900, their descendants included one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 college professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. The same study examined a different family that was known as the Jukes, not the actual name, but to preserve their anonymity, they called them the Jukes family, but it's a real family. In 1877, while visiting New York's prisons, Richard Dugdale found inmates with different last names that all turned out to be descendants from one man 
who Dugdale called Max Jukes. Again, not his real name. Born around 1720, Max was a hard drinker, idle, irreverent, and uneducated. He pulled away from civilization and lived in the rugged countryside of upstate New York. He preferred having no one to tell him what was right or wrong. Max Jukes' descendants included 310 paupers who combined spent 2,300 years in poorhouses, 50 women of debauchery, 40 physically wrecked by indulgent living, seven murderers, 60 thieves, and 130 other convicts. The Jukes descendants cost the state of New York more than $1.25 million. And friends, that, those were 18th and 19th century dollars. $1.25 million. Church family, one of the best ways that you can care for your nuclear families, one of the best ways you can care for your church family, and one of the best ways you can pray for your Bahamian national family is to realize that the power of consistent prayer and caring will turn things around. Of all the problems which the Bahamas currently faces, none is as important a problem as turning the reprobate to the regenerate. Of making regenerates out of rebels. And only God and his grace wrapped up in the gospel we preached about this morning, unleashed by prayer, one person at a time, can turn things around. If you do not pray for your nuclear family, who will? Now, I circle back to ask the question, who do you think unceasingly prays for you? Blessed is the person who has an answer to that question. And here's another related question, the flip side perhaps. For whom can you say, I unceasingly pray for you. These are convicting questions for the men in the pulpit as well as the people in the pew. It seems to me that I can only unceasingly pray for someone if they're consistently on my mind and on my heart. I can only unceasingly pray for someone if that someone is consistently on my mind and my heart because I love them as I love myself. And additionally, it seems to me that it really helps me to unceasingly pray for that person who's constantly on my mind and on my heart if, number one, they regularly update their prayer requests for me. May I just say for those of you and it may not be many tonight who write a missionary prayer letter, less is more. 
The prayer letters that I find easiest to pray over are the ones that say a lot in a few words. They're not verbose. They're concise. Seems to me that if I'm going to consistently pray for someone that's always on my mind and always in my heart, they need to regularly update their current prayer requests. And number two, they need to tell me of how the Lord has answered my past prayers for them. If you ask somebody to pray for you, you be sure you go and tell them how the Lord's answering. Maybe you say, I'm still in the wait mode. Or maybe you say, God answered yes. Or maybe you say, God answered no. Be sure to go back to the person you asked prayer for to let them know regularly what God is doing. If I'm going to unceasingly pray for someone, I need to have an update of their current prayer request. That's number one. Number two, they need to tell me of how the Lord has answered my prayers for them. Number three, I have to set a predictable, regular time for intercessory prayer. I'm told that broccoli is good for you. I don't like broccoli. I've put balsamic vinegar on it. I don't like broccoli. I'll tell you something. I have a set time to shower, but I have no set time to eat broccoli. Do you have a set time to intercede in prayer for others? Because I have a set time to shower each day, I am clean. But because I have no set time to eat broccoli, I do not eat broccoli. You will not intercede in an unceasing way for anybody unless you have an appointment with God, a regular time specified to intercede. And a place to intercede will help as well. Number four, if I'm going to unceasingly pray for people who are always on my mind and always in my heart, I need to keep some kind of a prayer list complete with the person's requests and God's answers. Doesn't have to be fancy. It can be lined paper. It can be a simple school spiral bound book you buy in an office supply store. It doesn't have to be a fancy journal of prayer, but it just needs to record and date what the prayer request is so you will pray for it regularly, and then what God answers when you have an answer. And when you're getting discouraged about interceding in prayer for someone, you be sure you check the answers in your list. One way to do that is to highlight them with colors, that the answers are highlighted in colors, and you can find the answers in a hurry if you're getting weary in interceding in prayer. And so we should go ahead tonight We should not wait for anything. We should not wait for a certain fleece from God. We should go ahead and show someone that we have a real care and interest in them. And I challenge myself and I challenge each of you that by noon tomorrow, you have prayerfully identified one person that you are going to regularly pray for. You're going to know their needs. You're going to keep track of their needs. You're going to pray for their needs. You're going to ask them how God is answering the things that you're praying about. By noon tomorrow, we'll identify a person each. Let's get off the dime. Let's not procrastinate. Let's not wait for the ideal moment. Let's do this.
by noon tomorrow, let's identify one person that we're going to prove our interest and care in by interceding for them in prayer. God will change things as we pray. God will change us as we pray. Maybe that someone that you're going to show a real caring interest by praying for regularly is a young person in our youth group of our church. Or maybe it's a shut-in who can't get out to worship services who is a part of our church. Or maybe it's a pressured college student or a pre-college student who this summer is fretting and worrying if whether their SAT scores are high enough to get into the college of their choosing. Or maybe it's a learning disabled child that you will take an interest and pray for. Or maybe it's a single mother. Or maybe it's an unemployed breadwinner. Maybe you will take a prayerful interest in a forgotten person of our church, a lonely person, a person that people overlook for whatever reason. Maybe you will take a prayerful interest in a high school student who struggles academically and socially. Maybe you'll take a prayerful interest in a chronically ill person or a person who labels themselves as chronically a victim of this or that. Maybe you'll take a prayerful interest in someone who serves in the Bahamian military. Or maybe you'll take a prayerful interest in an imprisoned convict that Joe Sweeting could put you in touch with by letter. And so verses 8 to 10 are beautiful because they give two proofs of Paul's caring interest in the Romans. Number one proof, he'd heard of their good testimony for Jesus that was spreading through the known world. And second proof of his care for them is he had been regularly interceding in prayer for them, although he had never met them. And so is there proof that the man in the pulpit really cares for other believers? And is there proof that the people in the pew tonight really genuinely care for the believers? And is our care for the believers visible, measurable? Will it be going forward noon tomorrow as an important deadline? The proof of our care in someone else will be interest in their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. The proof for our interest in another believer will be sustained, fed, maintained, grown by regular intercessory prayer for them. For who would you say unceasingly prays for you and for whom can you say that you unceasingly pray? At the Moody Bible Pastors Conference, which I've been privileged to attend several years, one year, H.B. London, a focus on the family, the pastor to the pastors, spoke. He said a lot of good things, and one of them was that over 200 years, his great-great-grandparents prayed daily for their own kids. And then one day, his great-great-great-grandfather sensed the Lord calling 
him and great, great, great grandma to pray for their own generation, but also for three future generations of the London family. And bless them, they did so daily for the rest of their lives. How did God answer? Several pastors and even more committed lay people who worked in local churches. And then there was H.B. London, who God raised up to be focused on the family's pastor to thousands and thousands of pastors worldwide. H.B. was one of the Lord's answers to those faithful prayers. And so I ask myself and you, what will be the Lord's answer to our faithful prayers for our families? Current generation, future generations. Again, all of the problems currently facing the Bahamas None are as important as the problem of making regenerates out of degenerates. And only God's grace, wrapped up in his gospel, unleashed by prayer, can solve the problem one Bahamian person at a time. Please pray with me. Caring Lord, we are especially grateful for your perfect caring interest in each of us as individuals. We praise you tonight that not one of us is a number to you. That when we talk to you, we never get a voicemail. We are grateful that so very often we have basked in your personalized and tailor-made caring touches for us. And it means so much that you, Lord Jesus, pray for us at the Father's right hand in heaven. Father, your great care for us, may it spur us on to genuine care for our sisters and our brothers in Christ. Please grow our interest in others' testimonies for you. Help us to make a habit of interceding in prayer for these ones. Because of our prayers and of your answers, may their descendants be more like the Edwards family than the Jukes family. Because of our intercessions and because of your merciful responses, may there be H.B. Londons in our family trees and Mrs. H.B. Londons. Father, we pray this with the access that you won via the work of your son completed on the cross as evidenced by the empty tomb. We pray these things, Father, for your glory and our good, and we pray these things in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name, amen.